alibi. Origin late 17th century as an adverb in the sense of elsewhere, from Latin elsewhere. The noun use dates to the late 18th century. Elsewhere is where I live and where I travel. Through the gloom and between the moments, I visit places, people, and occasionally things. I listen to their dreams, their desires, and I keep their secrets. And yes, sometimes I am their excuse. Welcome, I'm Babiole, and this is the Alibi Tent. Today is Saturn's Day, October 31st, Blue Moon in Taurus. Saturn's Day is good for intentions of enemy work, binding, blocking, clarifying, creating structure, revenge, and justice. The full moon is suited for intentions involving gratitude, appreciation, and giving thanks. Taurus Moon contributes energy for prosperity, perseverance, longevity and love, business, and security. Blessed Samhain and Happy Halloween to you. This is the witching time of year, the season of the crone. In ancient times, the goddess as crone, Kailoch in the Gaelic, and Caradwen to the Welsh, ruled the harvest festivals as queen of the witches. Halloween is rooted in the ancient tradition of Samhain, the most important of the Celtic festivals. It is a time of endings, but it is also a time of beginning, transition, and change. This is a time to go within, to know yourself, to celebrate growth, and release the past and prepare for the new. Samhain night exists outside of time and between worlds, deeply rooted in mystery and enchantment. The crone assists us in transition, leaving one level of our existence and entering the next. In honor of the season of the crone and the traditions of Samhain, I have chosen literary efforts concerning death, spirits, and that world between worlds where the living and the dead meet. We start with a poem by Edgar that exemplifies knowing and accepting yourself. From childhood's hour, I have not been as others were. I have not seen as others saw. I could not bring my passions from a common spring. From the same source, I have not taken my sorrow. I could not awaken my heart to joy at the same tone. And all I loved, I loved alone. The ancient Celts knew that not all spirits were well-intended and took great pains to protect themselves from malevolent and trickster spirits that could plague them through the coming year. In the spirit of the trickster, I offer you the following story by Saki. My aunt will be down presently, Mr. Nuttle, said the self-possessed 15-year-old. In the meantime, I'm afraid you must put up with me. 
Frampton tried to make pleasant conversation while waiting for the aunt. Privately, he doubted more than ever whether these formal visits on total strangers would help the nerve cure which he was supposed to be undergoing in this rural retreat. Do you know many people around here? asked the niece. Hardly a soul, Frampton replied. My sister gave me letters of introduction to some people here. Then you know practically nothing about my aunt, inquired the niece. Only her name and address, admitted Frampton. Her great tragedy happened just three years ago, said the girl soberly. Her tragedy? asked Frampton. Somehow in this restful spot, tragedy seemed out of place. You may wonder why we keep that window open so late in the year, said the niece, indicating the large French window that opened on a lawn. Out through that window, three years ago today, my aunt's husband and her two young brothers went off for their day's shooting. In crossing the moor, they were engulfed in a treacherous bog. Their bodies were never found. The girl continued, a sober sadness ringing her voice. Poor aunt always thinks that they'll come back someday, they and the little brown spaniel that was lost with them, and walk in that window. That is why it is kept open every evening till dusk. She's often told me how they went out, her husband with his white waterproof coat over his arm. You know, sometimes on still evenings like this, I get a creepy feeling that they will all walk in through that window. She broke off with a little shudder. It was a relief to Frampton when the aunt bustled into the room with apologies for keeping him waiting. I hope you don't mind the open window, she said. My husband and brothers will be home directly from shooting, and they always come in this way. She rattled on cheerfully about the prospects for duck hunting in the winter. Frampton made a desperate effort to turn the talk to a less ghastly topic, aware that his hostess was giving him only a fragment of her attention, and that her eyes were constantly straying past him to the open window. He cursed his luck at choosing to visit on this tragic anniversary. The doctors ordered me a complete rest from mental excitement and physical exercise, announced Frampton, who imagined that everyone, even a complete stranger, was interested in his illness. Oh, said his hostess vaguely. Then she suddenly brightened into attention, but not to what Frampton was saying. Here they are at last, she cried, in time for tea and muddy up to the eyes. Frampton shivered slightly and turned toward the niece with an empathetic understanding. The child was staring through the open window in a dazed horror. Upon seeing the niece's face, Frampton swung around and looked in the same direction. Through the twilight gloom, three figures were walking noiselessly across the lawn, a brown spaniel close at their heels. They all carried guns and one had a white coat over his shoulders. Frampton grabbed his cane, his form barely a blur as he ran through the hall door and down the gravel drive. Here we are, my dear, said the bearer of the white Macintosh. Who was that who bolted out as we came up? Mr. Nuttell, said the aunt in astonishment, still looking through the hall door 
and at Frampton's exit. An extraordinary man only talked about his illness, and not a word of apology before dashing off when you arrived. She turned to look at her husband. One would think he had seen a ghost. I expect it was the spaniel, said the niece calmly. He told me he had a fear of dogs. He was once hunted into a cemetery on the banks of the Ganges by a pack of stray dogs and had to spend the night in a newly dug grave with the creatures snarling above him. It's enough to make anyone lose his nerve. Samhain is known as a time of remembrance and honoring the dead by the living. But not much is written of how the dead honor their loved living. For this purpose, I offer the following Thomas Hardy poem. He does not think that I haunt here nightly. How shall I let him know? That where his fancy sets him wandering, I too alertly go. Hover and hover a few feet from him, just as I used to do, but cannot answer the words he lifts me, only listen thereto. When I could answer, he did not say them, when I could let him know how I would like to join his journeys. Seldom he wished to go. Now that he goes and wants me with him, more than he used to do, never he sees my faithful phantom, though he speaks thereto. Yes, I companion him to places only dreamers know, where the shy hares sprint long paces, where the night rooks go. Into old aisles where the past is all to him, close as his shade can do, always lacking the power to call to him near as I reach thereto. What a good haunter I am, O oh, tell him, quickly make him know. If he but sigh since my loss befell him, straight to his side I go. Tell him a faithful one is doing all that love can do. Still that his path may be worth pursuing, and to bring peace thereto. Samhain night is the most magical and mystical time in the year of the wheel, when the barrier between the worlds of the living and the dead is eased, promoting contact and communication. But take care if you aren't naturally skilled in the ways of talking with the dead. Miscommunication can have permanent consequences. Restless, shifting, fleeting as time itself is a certain vast bulk of the population of the red brick district of the Lower West Side. Homeless, they flit from furnished room to furnished room, transients forever. It would stand to reason that the houses of this district, having had a thousand dwellers, should have a thousand tales to tell. But it would be strange if there could not be found a ghost or two in the wake of all these vagrant guests. One evening after dark, a young man prowled among these crumbling red mansions, ringing their bells. At the twelfth, he rested his bags on the step 
and wiped the dust from his hat band and forehead. The bell sounded faint and far away in some remote hollow depths. To the door came a housekeeper, who he asked if there was a room to let. Come in, said the housekeeper. Her voice came from a throat that seemed lined with fur. I have the third floor back, vacant since a week back. Do you wish to look at it? The young man followed her up the stairs. A faint light revealing the rank hall and stairs of threadbare carpet. At each turn of the stairs were vacant niches in the hall. Perhaps plants had once been set within them and had died in the foul and tainted air. This is the room, said the housekeeper from her furry throat. It's a nice room. It ain't often vacant. I had some most elegant people in it last summer. No trouble at all and paid in advance to the minute. The water's at the end of the hall. The gas is here. And you see there is plenty of closet room. It's a room everybody likes. It never stays idle long. Do you have many theatrical people rooming here? Asked the young man. They comes and goes. A good proportion of my lodgers is connected with the theater. Yes, sir, this is the theatrical district. He took the room, paying for a week in advance. The room had been made ready, she said, including towels and water. As the housekeeper moved away, he asked for the thousandth time the question that he had posited on all his search. Do you remember a young girl, a Miss Eloise Vashner, being one of your lodgers? A singer on the stage, most likely. Fair, medium height, with reddish-gold hair and a dark mole near her left eyebrow. No, I don't remember the name. Them stage people has names they change as often as their rooms. They comes and they goes. No. Always no. Five months of ceaseless interrogation and the inevitable negative. So much time spent in questioning managers, agents, schools, choruses, and the audiences of theaters, from all-star casts down to music halls. He who had loved her best had tried to find her. He was sure that since her disappearance, this great water-girt city held her somewhere. The furnished room received its latest guest with a first glow of pseudo-hospitality. A decayed couch and two chairs, a foot-wide cheap pier glass between the two windows, a few gilt picture frames, and a brass bedstead in a corner. The guest reclined upon a chair. On the papered wall were the usual pictures one finds in such houses. On the mantel was some desolate flotsam cast aside by the room's former tenants. A vase or two, pictures of actresses, a medicine bottle, some stray cards out of a deck. One by one, the little signs left by the room's procession of guests developed a significance. Tiny fingerprints on the wall spoke of little prisoners trying to feel their way to the sun and air. A splattered stain witnessed where a hurled glass or bottle had splintered with its contents against the wall. Across the pier glass had been scrawled with a diamond on staggering letters the name Marie. The furniture was chipped and bruised. 
the couch distorted by bursting springs. It seemed incredible that all this malice and injury had been wrought upon the room by those who had, for a time, called it their home. The young tenant in the chair allowed these thoughts to file through his mind while there drifted into the room furnished sounds and furnished scents. He heard in one room tittering laughter, in others the rattling of dice, a lullaby, and one crying dully. Above him he heard a banjo. Doors banged somewhere. The elevated trains roared intermittently. A cat yowled miserably upon a back fence. And he breathed the breath of the house, reeking exhalations of linoleum and mildewed and rotten wood. Then suddenly, as he sat there, the room was filled with the strong, sweet odor of perfume. And the man cried aloud, What, dear? as if he had been called and stood up and looked about. The rich scent clung to him and wrapped around him. He reached out his arms for it, all his senses for the time confused and commingled. Surely it must have been a sound that stirred him. But what had touched and caressed him? She has been in this room, he cried, and set to searching it. He knew he would recognize the smallest thing that had belonged to her or that she had touched. This scent of the perfume that she had loved and made her own, where did it come from? Scattered upon the flimsy dresser scarf were half a dozen hairpins. These he ignored. There was no way to be sure they belonged to her or another female tenant. Ransacking the drawers of the dresser, he came upon a discarded handkerchief. He pressed it to his face. It smelled of heliotrope. He hurled it to the floor. In another drawer, he found odd buttons, a theater program, a book on the divination of dreams. In the last was a woman's black satin hair bow, which gave him pause, but he reminded himself that a hair bow is so common an ornament there could be no way to be sure of its owner. And then he traversed the room on his hands and knees, rummaging mantle and tables, the curtains and hangings, the drunken cabinet in the corner, for a visible sign. He wasn't able to sense that she was there beside, around, against, within, and above him, clinging to him and calling him so mournfully that once again he answered loudly, Yes, dear and turned wild-eyed to gaze on emptiness, for he could not yet discern form and color and love and outstretched arms in the scent of her perfume. Tortured, he burrowed in crevices and corners and found corks and cigarettes. He sifted the room from end to end. He found small, dreary reminders of many transient tenants, but of her whom he loved and whose spirit seemed to hover there, he found no trace. Then he thought of the housekeeper. He ran from the haunted room, downstairs into a door that showed a crack of light. He knocked and she came out. Will you tell me, madam, he implored her, who occupied my room 
before I came. Yes, sir. I can tell you again. Twas Sprouse and Mooney, as I said. Miss Bretta Sprouse it was in the theaters, but Mrs. Mooney she was. My house is well known for respectability. The marriage license hung framed on a nail over... What kind of a lady was Miss Sprouse? He impatiently interrupted. In looks, I mean. Why, black-haired, sir. Short and stout, with a comical face. They left a week ago Thursday. And before them? Why, there was a single gentleman connected with the delivery business. He left owing me a week. Uh, before him was Mrs. Crowder and her two children. They stayed four months. And back before them was old Mr. Doyle, whose sons paid for him. He kept the room six months. That goes back a year, sir, and further I do not remember. He thanked her and crept back to his room. The room was dead. The essence that was, was gone. The perfume had departed. In its place was the old, stale odor of moldy house furniture. The ebbing of his hope drained his faith. He sat staring at the yellow, singing gaslight. Soon he walked to the bed and began to tear the sheets into strips. With the blade of his knife, he drove them tightly into every crevice of window and door. When all was snug and taut, he turned out the light, turned the gas full on again, and laid himself gratefully upon the bed. It was Miss McCool's night to go for beer. She fetched it and sat with Miss Purdy in one of those retreats where housekeepers gather. I rented out my third floor back this evening, said Miss Purdy. A young man took it. He went up to bed two hours ago. Now did ye, Miss Purdy, said Miss McCool with intense admiration. You do be a wonder for renting rooms of that kind. And did you tell him then? She concluded in a husky whisper, laden with mystery. Rooms, said Miss Purdy in her furious tones, are furnished for to rent. I did not tell him, Mrs. McCool. Tis right you are, ma'am. Tis by renting rooms we keep alive. You have the real sense for business, ma'am. There be many people will reject the renting of a room if they be told a suicide has been after dying in the bed of it. As you say, we has our living to be making, remarked Miss Purdy. Yes, ma'am, tis true. Tis just one week ago this day I helped you lay out the third floor back. A pretty slip of a Colleen she was to be killing herself with the gas. A sweet little face she had. But for that mole she had a growing by her left eyebrow, said Miss McCool. She'd have been called handsome, as you say, Miss Purdy assented with a sigh, then said, Do fill up your glass again, Miss McCool. And now we come to our last offering of this Halloween night. It's a work that I recite as a tradition and an offering to a very important person in my life. Some of you may identify with the sentiment. It was down in the woodland on last Halloween, where silence and darkness had built them a lair, that I felt the dim presence of him, the unseen, and heard his step on the hush-haunted air. It was last Halloween 
in the glimmer and swoon of mist and of moonlight where once we had sinned, that I saw the gleam of his eyes in the moon and his chestnut hair blown wild on the wind. It was last Halloween where starlight and dew made mystical marriage on flower and leaf, that he led me with looks of love that I knew was dead and the voice of a passion too brief. It was last Halloween in the forest of dreams where trees are eidolons and flowers have eyes that I saw his face pale like the foam of far streams and heard like the night wind his tears and his sighs. It was last Halloween, the haunted, the dread, in the wind-tattered wood by the storm-twisted pine, that I, who am living, kept tryst with the dead, and clasped him a moment who once had been mine. Warm Samhain wishes and happy Halloween to you all. Somewhere between the mundane and the mysterious, the privileged and the primitive, the divine and the damned is the alibi tent.